Welcome, one and all. I'm Chris Stone, the Virtual Agile Coach, and this is the Virtually Agile Podcast, the pod that shares conversations with Agile thought leaders, as well as amplifying newer voices. In today's episode with our no-nonsense guest, we explore a new technique called dysfunction mapping, and we play dysfunction speed dating. If you find value in this episode, don't forget to follow or subscribe on your platform of choice so you can be kept up to date when the latest episodes land. Enjoy the show. I'm very pleased to welcome Michael Lloyd to the show. Now, Michael, for any listeners who may not be familiar with your work, tell us a little bit more about you and what you're about. Cool, yeah. So uh, I am an Agile coach and a Scrum Master. I have been doing roles like that for for the better part of about eight years now. like a lot of people, I found that when I started in, in that role, I wasn't very good at it. It took me a long time to figure out what it actually means to be an effective coach and scrum master. Uh, and so recently, I've been kind of trying to solve that problem in whatever way I can. So I've been very active on LinkedIn and, and the Agile community and just trying to give people tools, tips that go beyond just like frameworks and give them concrete actions, things that they can use to hopefully just be a bit more effective. Um, so one of those things that I've created recently is dysfunction mapping, which is what I'm talking a lot about lately. Uh, but really, I'm just all about supporting Scrum Masters to be better at being Scrum Masters. Perfect. Very much resonates with me and what I'm about. And I have seen a lot of your content on LinkedIn. It's the reason that you and I are connected and probably the reason that we're speaking on the show today. Now, what interests me about your LinkedIn uh, persona, shall we call it? You describe yourself as a bit of a, a thought provoker and someone who's got a bit of a no-nonsense approach when you share your, your content about Agile. Where does that stem from? So it's actually quite a deliberate um, approach. And so interestingly, a lot of people that I've had, you know, talks on podcasts with, um, they note that I'm I'm quite different than they expect in the real world because I'm quite a, a like nice, uh, non-confrontational, uh, agreeable person. It's, it's just like the way I do things. Um, but my problem with LinkedIn when I started using it is it felt a little bit too positive. It felt like everyone was just always afraid of saying the wrong thing or, you know, being corrected or, or you know, it just the, the discussion didn't seem robust enough based on what I was looking for, which was to actually learn. And so when I started on LinkedIn, that was just the, the tact I decided to take. It was how do I make sure that I'm giving the no nonsense answer that people want and then letting them correct me, letting them tell me that I'm wrong. And, you know, that happens quite a lot. Um, but ultimately not trying to be too much of a dick about it, just, you know, not being uh, dishonest or, or trying too hard to sit on the fence. <laughs> you remind me there of one of my favorites values that companies have which is just don't be a dick uh, i think it's huel that has that on their offices wall don't be a dick and it's a great mantra to live by now i guess the, the following question i have about that persona of yours is has it ever bit you in the ass i, I suppose it depends on uh, on what you would look at as being bitten in the ass um i've definitely had a, a few situations where i think people have not wanted to listen to what I want to say or, or not um, not had the most favorable interpretation of the things that I've had to say because I can come across as sometimes as a bit of a dick, even though that's not what I'm trying to do. It's just because I'm being, you know, as straight up as possible. And, and that sometimes makes people put their walls up. Um, I have had a couple of situations where, uh, you know, my employer has come to me and said, hey, maybe you should be careful about what you're saying because, you know, it could be misinterpreted. Um, and usually my response to that is, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And if if it gets misinterpreted, we can talk about it. Um, I'm not going to just not say things because someone might be upset by it. I'd rather have that conversation after the fact. Um, But I think for the most part, it works out really well. Like I'm I'm sure you've had similar experiences, right? I think, uh, especially on social media, people are more afraid of the idea of offending someone than 
actually instances of offending people and, and even when you do kind of cross the line most of the time if you just say yeah you know you're right i'm sorry i, I made a mistake or i was wrong people are pretty I think they like that because they don't see it much. So you just have to be able to take that risk. There is absolutely a power and a vulnerability admitting that you were wrong and that you were, you've learned from the, the, the situation or the, the conversation. Honestly, when I, when I share content on LinkedIn, I welcome disagreement. I welcome the discussion, mm -hmm. the debate. I once had someone who was very frustrated with some, some content I'd shared, didn't believe in it whatsoever, and used the phrase, get off my lawn. Uh, and I was like, what does that mean? Tell me more. Like, help, help me understand what you mean by get off, get off your lawn. And I think they were, they were getting at that I was on their feed, on their LinkedIn feed, sharing something that they disagreed with and they weren't particularly happy with it. We, we, we engaged in a continued discourse and I, I thanked them for continuing the conversation. And he started going down the route of, well, uh, you should do more harm than you do good. Uh, which I firmly believe in, right? So if you're sharing something, and I, I share things with the intent, that the intent of continuous improvement and to help people, if you're doing so with that intent and you're doing more harm than good, then you're in the right, on the right path. And, and I, I firmly believe that the, the work I've done in the Agile community has done far more harm than good. And I'm regularly told that by lots and lots of people on a daily basis, in fact. So I wasn't particularly disheartened by the get off my lawn comments it happens. It's okay. And, and I, I remember finishing that conversation by saying, thank you for continuing the conversation. Even if I'm not welcome on, on your lawn, you are welcome on mine. Mm, I like that. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I had a, I can't even remember the thing that triggered it recently, but I had a great um, series of conversations on a post. Uh, I was actually reflecting on a joke that I saw Ricky Gervais do in one of his standups about um, Twitter, like being like the public square. And it's as if someone puts up a, a poster that says, you know, free guitar lessons, call this number. And someone picks up the phone to call the number and says, I don't fucking want guitar lessons. Um, and it, it feels like that yeah. sometimes. It's like every, everyone thinks that your advice is directed exactly at them. And, and I think the, um, the things sometimes that can, can rub people the wrong way is when you're, you're criticizing an approach that you have seen be a negative approach. So one example that I use all the time is story points. Right? I'm not a massive fan of story points. I usually see them being used in a way that's more destructive than useful. Um, but just because I'm saying that and, and explaining my experience, that doesn't mean that no one anywhere should ever use story points or that no one anywhere has ever gotten value out of them. And, and that certainly doesn't mean that I'm criticizing you as an individual because you have used them or gotten value out of them. But it's a lot easier to just say, I don't like story points because I've seen this happen than it is to do that fancy thing of saying, well, sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad. Cause then cool. If you've got that alternate experience, if you've seen the things different, now you can tell me about it, right? That's the interesting discussion rather than just that, that middle ground. So. Yeah. And I guess it draws on your, your point earlier, right? Is that uh, LinkedIn social media in general can be a bit of a haven of toxic positivity. Sometimes like everything's always, mm. Oh, we've transformed this, this success, this, and the problem with that is you don't hear about the, the negative side, the failures, uh, and those failures mm -hmm. are dirty words. They're destigmat or they're stigmatized, not destigmatized. And that's actually something I, I actively try to promote regularly. I will share failures of mine uh, on LinkedIn widely. Like a recent one of mine, and I've shared my my biggest, most unprofessional failure, probably of all time, was that uh, I was on a on a work call on on Teams. I was working with a client. And uh, I happened to be voice noting a, uh, you know, a partner of mine 
discussing things we might be doing together that evening, very sexually explicit things. And uh, I sent this voice note and then I looked up, or well, actually, no, I heard the, what was that, Chris? Realizing I wasn't on mute. And I kid you not, Michael, my soul left my body. I thought, fuck, what have I done? What have I done? Most unprofessional thing I've ever done. I uh, apologized profusely. I said, Let, let's move on, shall we? But the problem, well, the, not the problem, but the, the great thing was that I didn't lose my job. I'm, I'm human. I make mistakes. It happens. I won't bloody do that again. <laughs> but it happens. And yeah, there's nothing wrong with talking about the bad side of things every now and then. Again, if you've got it with the right intent, that's, that's how, how can we help others improve and learn from what we've done? Yeah, and I think the thing that's interesting about social media nowadays as well is it has given a lot of power to people to have conversations that they wouldn't normally be able to have because it's like somewhere between the safe personal environment and the really potentially strict corporate environment you know and so uh, it's why it's been interesting to watch as i think linkedin in particular has gotten a bit more um casual over the years i don't know if you've seen that same pattern but it feels like it's become um more social media than than work media um and it's nice for me i think because people need that that spot where they can talk about their work stuff but not have to worry about being fired for saying the wrong thing. And I, th I think it's, it's nice that this kind of whole new conversation has opened up that um, doesn't rely on either trusting people that could potentially fire you to not judge you too harshly, but not just bottling it all up and never talking about it. Well, equally, by being, I guess, more casual, relaxed uh, and showing your human side, it's reflecting that that's what we are. We're humans. We're not just corporate drones. I actively try and share content that isn't super professional all the time i was i was asked recently when i was delivering a training course uh, at at the pub after with a, with a few pints with this 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 cohort and someone asked me hey does your does your aesthetic and your your look does it ever stop you getting clients and i said well no not 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 that i've experienced it probably does but not 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 actively and let, let's let's walk through a scenario right you arrive to a training course one day and you're met by this trainer suited and booted like looks looking like a proper consultant and you're maybe dressed a little more casually that probably puts you a little bit unease compared comparatively whereas i will rock up in just like a, a a checked shirt a pair of jeans you know bearded like this and i've been told that puts people in a more comfortable place they feel like actually oh i'm i'm relating to this this human person who just wants to wear um you know comfortable clothes when he's when he's in the workplace so i actively try and mm. present that as a, a persona not as a persona but just be myself in the workplace be myself on linkedin mm. and otherwise because that's what we are we, we're humans we're not just uh jira ticket machines <laughs> yeah no I've, I've been through the same thing i um I remember when I was in my first like agile coach position after I'd been doing some scrum mastering for a while and stuff, and it was at a bank and I joined a team of other agile coaches and they all wore suits to work. Um, and so I did the same for the first few weeks. And um, I very quickly noticed that it's like the second they uh, would you know enter a room or with a team or whatever, because all the developers in, in, in that place, they were mostly wearing casual clothes or business casual at least. Um, and it, it was just, you could feel the change when a person in a suit and tie walks into the room. Just like, oh, this person's not a developer, right? They're, they're someone else. Um, and so I very quickly switched to dressing as casually as I possibly could. So it was, you know, jeans and one of my metal t-shirts or something. And, and just, um, like you say, it's just, it's be yourself because the, the suit in my experience usually is the persona. Like I think most people, they put the suit on because it helps them to feel, you know, 
powerful or, or professional or something or other. Uh, and, and it's cool. There's places where that might make sense. But when you're trying to like connect with people and, and influence people, it feels like it's not the right move, right? It's cool. I'm this guy. I'm no one special. You don't need to give me any special attention. Let's just talk. And, and yeah, the more the more you're just being your usual self, I think the easier those conversations go. I agree. And thank you for sharing. Let's uh, let's dive into this cool new thing you've created then, dysfunction mapping. Can you give me a quick fun analogy to explain what dysfunction mapping is for anyone new to the concept? Cool. Uh, so analogies I'm usually not very good at. Give it I'll a try. Go. Um, so so <laughs> I, uh, I look at it as uh, a way of teaching people fire safety instead of teaching them to put out fires. Um, and the reason I use that analogy a lot is because I feel like every time I join a new team or an organization as an agile coach or as a scrum master, everything is on fire, right? right? There's always just so much challenge when you're new and, and you haven't gotten used to the stuff, right? And you can see what's going on. And I think things like, um, you know, scrum and scaled agile and, and these other tools and frameworks are, are great. They offer a lot of awesome tools, um, but they, they seem to be a lot more concerned with, doing stuff putting out fires right it's, it seems to be a lot more about um following someone else's process i guess would be the, the simplest way i could put it whereas dysfunction mapping for me is about well how do i take all of my knowledge of the agile world of the agile industry uh, and focus in my efforts on the most important fires and put those out first and then embed the behaviors and the patterns that are going to stop things from getting out of control in future interesting so would it be fair to say that uh if we're talking fire safety as an, an analogy, then this dysfunction mapping is a bit like what uh, I guess Smokey the Bear is for anyone in the US or Wellifants is the, the UK equivalent fire safety mascot. So, something to promote keeping in control of fire before it begins. Yeah, maybe. I, I think um, so. It start, I, I guess the reason I started with it or the reason I've started sharing it a lot is because it, it is actually about being a bit more concrete. Um, so while it is about embedding that idea of, okay, now we can sense patterns and now we can kind of take those small corrective steps to prevent things from going crazy. The main place I think it has value for a lot of scrum masters and agile coaches is when they're new and there's just so much stuff. And rather than just teaching them a bunch of frameworks, it gives them a way to come up with what I call hypothesis, uh, hypothesis based solutions, right? So I think if I do some stuff, then we'll get some outcome over here. Um, so yes, it is about kind of, putting that mindset in place but in my experience the mindset part is what a lot of people talk about it's the concrete action part that i feel is often missed when we're training people and upskilling them and so that's the part i'm really trying to add on is how do you actually figure out what to do and have some you know confidence that you're going to have a, a positive impact so where are you with that that side of things on the turning that dysfunction map into concrete actions what would someone do a scrum master and agile coach has, has captured their map. They've worked with the team. They've understood the, the current dysfunctions. What next? Yeah, so it's it's all about testing hypotheses, right? So the way I describe it is empiricism is not just about the work itself. Empiricism is about the way we approach the work. Uh, and so uh, if you have observed a bunch of problems in an organization or in a team, you can see that it's creating a bunch of pain or discomfort for, for the people involved you should be able to go through this process and come up with one of these hypotheses, right? I think that if I take this teaching action or this coaching action, then we'll see some positive improvements. And this is how we'll measure it. This is how we'll know that it's had a positive effect. 
usually measured by the symptoms that we previously observed having gone away. Uh, and so now you can actually take those actions and see, does it have the effect that I wanted it to have? So that, that for me is the way of kind of bringing that empiricism in is rather than just doing a bunch of sort of often random scattershot coaching actions, as we often do, we get you know pulled in many directions. This is about putting a, a specific focus in place saying, right, this seems like the most important thing to solve. If I'm right about this problem, it, then doing this thing will solve these problems. And now I can test it and see if that's true. And sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, but now you've got a better understanding and you can go back and you can recheck, re uh, check your hypothesis or change it completely. Okay. So perhaps uh, let's, let's try and bring it to life a little bit for anyone listening. Imagine, mm. let's, let's start with a symptom and I'll allow you to choose maybe a, a common symptom that you, you observe during dysfunction mapping and then take it through the, that kind of approach you would go through from getting that symptom through to a hypothesis. Yeah, cool. I mean, so the um, the cool thing about it, right, is it is about sensing patterns. And so often there'll be many symptoms that will go through to one or two dysfunctions. And so you're trying to, to group things. So so it's easier to do as a, as a big activity than, than a single one. Um, but to give an example, right, of something that I, I might um, observe when I join a team is, oh, the daily scrum overruns the 15 minute time box every day, right? That could be um, a symptom. I, I personally would describe that as a symptom. Some people might call that a dysfunction, uh, the difference being, you know, something that tells us there's a problem versus the root cause of the problem, maybe, or at least a, a, a higher level order problem. Um, so for me, the reason that overrunning the time box of the daily scrum is, is a symptom is because solving that problem doesn't necessarily make anything better, right? If the, the daily scrum goes from 20 minutes to 50 minutes, does, does that improve the team? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but as a dysfunction, we might have something like uh, the team isn't breaking down the work into small pieces. So that's something we know is a, is a good thing for teams to do, generally speaking. Um, and if they're not breaking the work down to small pieces, you can see why that might turn into big, complex pieces of work that they can't understand, which then turns into we're having to have really big, long conversations every day at the Daily Scrum, right? Um, and so going through the process, you, what you do then is you figure out, well, what's the purpose of that of that rule, that, that idea, right? Um, so the, the thing I always say in the training is, um, I only ask you to just take my word for one thing, everything else you can challenge me on, but take my word on one thing, and that's that effective coaching comes from helping people to understand purpose, not just telling them what to do, right? And so part of this process is me figuring out, do I understand the purpose? So why do we break work down into small pieces? So I come up with a purpose statement, and that could be anything, you know, diff different person uh, might come up with a different idea, but something along the lines of uh, we break work down into small pieces because then we can optimize flow and get value delivered to customers more quickly and get feedback more quickly, you know, any number of things. Once you've come up with a purpose statement, now you come up with your solution hypothesis. What's a coaching action that I can take that will help that purpose to be realized? And then I give people a bunch of tools. So, for example, you might pull in the six stances of a Scrum Master, right? Could I do a teaching action? Could I do a coaching action? Could I remove an impediment? Um, you might bring in empiricism and say, could I increase transparency or could I create an inspection opportunity? Um, and then once you've kind of gone through that, the last step is, is measure, which is, okay, how do I know if I've had a positive effect? How do I know if this thing has worked? Um, and so the cool part about this process is you've kind of already done the work. And so one of your measures is going to be, oh, well, the daily Scrum no longer takes an hour every day, right? Um, so if previously the daily scrum was taking an hour every day and we do these coaching actions and the team's better at breaking down work and they're better at delivering value more frequently, I should expect to see as a result, the daily scrum stops overrunning its time box as one such thing that you would observe. And generally, like say, you'd have multiple things for any given sort of pattern. Um, but again, it just gives you a bit of, um, 
I guess, focus a little bit of a framework to put around your ideas and say, right, I'm going to do this and hopefully have this outcome. All right. Thank you for explaining that. So let me just confirm I've captured it correctly, right? We start with our, our symptom. We then might do some sort of a clustering or affinity mapping because there could be multiple symptoms there. We identify a dysfunction next. We turn our dysfunction into a purpose statement or we, we realign around a purpose statement. Why is it that we're doing this, this particular action? And then from that, we create a, a bit of a solution hypothesis and then gauge measure our improvement over time based on has that symptom been resolved? or improved upon. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Sounds very uh, close to a, a approach. I mean, I, I being such a fan of retrospectives and a believer in experimentation as a mindset, uh, often help the teams that I work with to create similar hypotheses using various canvases. Uh, and one of the ones that I use mm. is starting with the, the problem. So what's the problem we're trying to solve or what? why are we experimenting? So why are we doing this? Why are we trying something new? What's the desired outcome? What we try, are trying to achieve through the experiment? We then go into a quadrant around the results. So what are we expecting to see in a chosen time frame? typically a few months if we've been successful and what data metrics or otherwise do we need to measure? And then uh, what's the trials? So what steps are we gonna take to bring this experiment to life? And when are we gonna measure those results? And that's a flow I take mm -hmm. people through when they're trying to turn a dysfunction or, or an action or something they're trying to achieve through an experiment. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good approach, right? And and yeah, to be clear, I'm not pretending that I've invented anything, uh, you know, massively original here. Um, what I've really done is just taken an approach that I found was repeatable, that, that takes those sorts of ideas, like you say, that other people have had plenty of times before, which is how do we map through from a problem to a solution. Um, but I've tried to essentially categorize it in a way that's really, really specific for scrum masters and agile coaches, so that they can not only go through that flow for things that maybe they wouldn't otherwise have the language to do so. Uh, and what I mean by that is we're talking about, you know, scrum team practice or scaled agile practice or something like that, where um, we often don't have as much of an ability to, you know, just talk to the team about uh, what the potential problem is. We might be taking that higher level view that's kind of our individual accountability. Uh, but then the second thing is to make sure that for each of those steps, again, because I'm trying to kind of upskill Scrum Masters, it's about giving them specific ways of, of figuring that stuff out. So it's not just, you know, while that tool that I've just laid out is essentially just some columns on a board, the training content and the and the stuff that I'm trying to provide people is about, well, cool, for each of these columns, here's some specific things you can think about or conversations you can have to kind of get that ideation going. Um, and again, I... I wouldn't expect that you know people like you that have a huge amount of experience with this stuff are probably going to gain that much from it. Um, this is really aimed at at people who are earlier on in their in their Scrum Master journey that just you know they've got all these tools that they've learned about you know Kanban and Scrum and Safe and whatever else. Um, and how do you put some some structure around that and say cool? How do you turn that into action? And I, I think for me that's what I felt like I was missing. I kind of built it as I went, and now I'm just kind of sharing it in the hopes that it helps other people. So what I wouldn't be keen to do is for you to sell yourself short there so whilst i obviously i've been around for a while I, i've got knowledge of lots of different approaches and techniques i can clearly see how this as an approach could provide a, a systematic set of steps that someone could start with a symptom and work through to a dysfunction that could be very very or work through to a hypothesis sorry that could be very very powerful uh, there's obviously lots of lots of models that people try they they some some fit their context better than others and this could be ideal for them so don't certainly don't sell yourself too short there and it, it not being useful from the, the more experienced practitioners i guess what i'm intrigued about is 
how this could scale. Um, how or what have you explored with regards to trying this kind of dysfunction mapping, uh, maybe at team of teams level or enterprise level? Have you thought about anything in that vein? Yeah, so I have used it and, and built it to be very scalable generally. Um, and that's because, uh, you know, I've done a bunch of work in organizations that have, for example, used SAFE, right? And we don't necessarily need to get into whether SAFE is good or bad because everyone's got a, a strong opinion on that. Um, but my general rule is, well, if an organization is using something like SAFE, um, you should be using the same rigor that you would use with scrum right you should be saying are we actually doing the things as intended are we are we getting the value of this process or tool uh, in the way that is intended um and so you can you can apply it right up to you know many many teams so so i think the biggest organization i used was was about 100 developers um in a, in kind of a single let's say release train or value stream um I've used it in organizations much, much bigger, but usually when I'm just looking at one smaller subset of the system. So there's no real outer bound to where this is useful. Um, the, the way I describe it is it starts with Scrum practice. So, so you need at least to have a good knowledge of Scrum to get any use out of the tool. Um, but then it scales to your knowledge. So the bigger your organization, the bigger your um, like tool belt of, of things you can pull in, just the more options you've got for identifying these patterns and uh, coming up with your solution hypotheses. Um, and one of the things that I've been just starting to think about actually is um, scaling my training itself and actually see, seeing how many people I could get in a you know, virtual session to kind of go through this process collaboratively as well based on all of their relative organizations. So I think, and I, I will be testing this at some point, that I could, for example, get 100 Scrum Masters from 100 different organizations together and have them all collaboratively building some solution hypotheses either in subgroups or as a large group. Um, because again, there's not, um, or at least as I always say to people, it's not a silver bullet, right? It's not about right or wrong. Two people could come up with two completely different connections of problems or two, two uh, different hypotheses, but that doesn't mean that either one of those is right or wrong. As long as they both provide them with concrete action that you know achieves some valuable result, then that's great. So uh, you know people could therefore collaborate and cross pollinate the problems that they're seeing and still come up with useful plans for change. So it's really about structure more than it is about an actual answer. I'm definitely with you on the the no one size fits all. Uh, fundamentally, I believe that we should use the the tool, the approach, the methodology, the framework, whatever you want to call it, that fits your context, your people, your culture, your situation, rather than just copy and pasting what you've seen work elsewhere. When you copy and paste, yeah, that there are there are good starting points. They're uh, a bit of a scaffolding for ultimately experimenting and finding what works for you, but then absolutely customize from there. What I'm intrigued about is how this could be used as like a, a, a retrospective exercise, of course. Uh, I'm imagining a scenario where I had, uh, I don't know, every, 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 every team in a company coming together on a single virtual whiteboard to en masse identify symptoms, uh, mm -hmm. expose systemic dysfunction, and co-create systemic experimentation that aims to improve upon those dysfunctions. So it's definitely mm -hmm. something I might have to borrow your template and give a give a go with at some time. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see that. So, so one of the things actually that I'm creating, and I was actually just working on this morning, um, because I like to bring this to life with some more physical stuff, is a couple of decks of cards. Um, and so there's going to be a physical version and a, a digital version that, that may well work very well for, for a kind of retro like you're describing. Um, and the, the two decks of cards are essentially um, 
problem prompts and solution prompts. And so the idea is if you're struggling to, to have that conversation, right, let's say we know there is a problem with, uh, let's say the integration of our product across teams, right? A common issue. Um, you might draw some, some problem cards that say, um, you know, what are some things that we do that make us feel uncomfortable? Or um, who are some people that sometimes feel like they disrupt us? Or you know, they're just basically questions that force you to, to think through the problem. So that, that's something I'm kind of working out. Um, the solution pack is, is a little bit more clear to me because it's based on what I'm already training, which is um, which elements can you draw at random to try and come up with the solution? So for example, you might pick you know, an event card, an accountability card, and a value card. And you might get um, courage, sprint review, product owner. And then you say, cool, using those three things, can I form a solution to this problem that I'm solving? And often the answer is, yeah, we could, right? It might not be the best solution, but it gets your brain going and thinking about all these different ways you can solve problems. Um, and then, yeah, you can just kind of draw cards at random. And, and again, this is my way of kind of trying to give people a bit more just structure to it, because I think we often have the same conversations over and over again because we're used to them. And I kind of want to just throw some chaos into the mix and say, oh, try this, see, see if that works. And maybe the answer is no, it won't, but cool, you'll have a good conversation anyway. I love that. It's uh, a technique that I, I often use with the, when, when, I, when I run workshops or training or facilitating a retro or otherwise, where you just kind of remix a little bit the original ideas by just providing different ways of asking questions. So different prompts, mm. uh, you know, a random selection of attributes or, or cards. An example I often give is that if you were saying, hey, sad, mad, glad, the most boring retro format in the world, you could take the uh, emotions wheel, if anyone's familiar with that, the emotions wheel, it's got all of the different ranges of emotions. It goes far deeper into the, the, the human experience than just sad, mad, glad. And you could say, right, pick on a, on a random wheel generator. You're going to have one that's kind of representing a, a happy kind of emotion, one that's representing a sad kind of emotion, and one that's representing something else. And just combine those three things and use those as ways of prompting questions. And it's just that combination of different things gets people thinking differently, new ideas, new solutions mm. come about to solve problems. Now, I've got a game. Let's try something. I'm, I'm keen to see if you're up for this and how it will go. I call this dysfunction cool. speed dating. What's okay. going to happen is I'm going to give you a common team dysfunction, and I'd like you to see if you mm. can come up with a, a quick, playful intervention or improvement idea maybe a, a mini hypothesis for how you could solve that mm. dysfunction. Are you ready yeah, for that cool, again? Yeah, let's do it. All right, yeah. okay. Number one, failing to inspect and adapt. Failing to inspect and adapt. So I guess it's a bit of a general one, right? So, so um, in the real world, the first thing I would wanna do is observe and get some concrete examples of where that's causing a problem. And those are the symptoms that I'd be wanting to hook this on. So I would think that some of the things I might see are uh, retrospective items that are coming up over and over again with no change or um, customer feedback that's repeating itself in sprint reviews, right? Those are, those are some of the symptoms I might expect to see that might lead me to a dysfunction of uh, the team is not inspecting and adapting. Um, so then I would think about, well, okay, what's the purpose? Why do we inspect and adapt? Well, it's because we're dealing with complex products and, and situations. And so we can't know what good looks like until we've gotten feedback. And uh, because the actual thing that we want to build maybe is unclear. And so we, we need to make sure that we are uh, testing our assumptions b before we, we move on. 
so then I might come up with my solution hypothesis, which is, well, okay, how do I help people understand that solution? Let's put pull the uh, the teacher card. Maybe I will literally just run a session on inspection and adaption and why it's valuable, maybe with a bit of a Scrum 101 flavor and why they're in there as the pillars of Scrum and how the different Scrum events support it. And then as a result, I would expect my measure to be some of the symptoms that I saw. So, you know, we would stop seeing repeat retro items and we would stop seeing repeat customer feedback because now the team understands the value and purpose of inspecting and adapting. So that's super fast version, but obviously a lot more to it when you get into the detail. <laughs> awesome. Nicely done. Let's try another one then. Number two, people don't speak up in meetings. Ooh, people don't speak up in meetings. That's a good one. So, um, I suppose that one probably would be a symptom I would see, and I would expect that a dysfunction might be, let's say, uh, let's say psychological safety is one I would pull from that, right? So maybe it's because uh, they don't feel that it's safe to speak up. They don't feel like they're not going to be punished for saying what they think, that, that kind of a thing. Um, again, one of many potential reasons that could be the case. Um, so as a purpose, well, the reason we want psychological safety is because these are awesome people that are really creative and intelligent, and they're never going to be able to contribute their all if they don't feel safe to, to say what they need. Um, cool. So how do I help people to understand that? Well, let's think, uh, let's use impediment remover, uh, and I'm going to think about external stakeholders for this one. So is there a, firstly, is there a person or a stakeholder or someone who in the past has, uh, made people feel like they were. Uh, not doing the right thing by speaking up or, or uh, talking. And then I might take on, say, the mentor stance and help them understand why behavior change might be useful. Um, or alternatively, it could be going out of the way to find stakeholders that could reward people for being open or honest and maybe even demonstrate their own mistakes and failings like we talked about earlier, right? Saying what they've done that has caused problems to show that that's an okay thing to do. Uh, and then as a result measure, I would hopefully expect to see more people speaking up in in sprint reviews which uh, or in in maybe retrospectives any anywhere potentially that i might measure by you know what percentage of the team talks in any given event and just track that over a few sprints and see how it changes uh really interesting thing that you've just reminded me of uh, there is a tool called butter that i i use and this is not a promo or anything called tool called butter that i use that just recently released a feature that enables you to see the percentage that people speak in a meeting and I just thought mm. that was an amazing way of just saying, right, as a, as a snapshot, this meeting, this person spoke that percentage, that person spoke that percentage. Okay, great team. What could we do to help those people speak more and have these people not mm. dominate the conversation as much? And obviously I wouldn't frame it as they're dominating the conversation. I'd flip it and say, right, how can we enable more inclusivity and equal participation? What could we do, us against the problem? Mm. A few, a few points from me on the, the psychological safety thing uh, there's a great technique that I love where rather than assuming silence means agreement you flip it around and say mm. silence means disagreement and mm. that very simple switch can have people speaking more uh, mm. I, I often use techniques that, that are very intentional about what psychological safety is what it means for us so you can use there's a psychological safety canvas like coat of arms that I've created recently with Steve Sampson Jones. There is a, a psychological safety retro that I've done that was based on the work of Amy Edmondson, Professor Amy Edmondson, mm -hmm. uh, and her books, uh, her research there. Yeah, some great ideas. Let's do let's do a final speed dating one then. So, I think we've talked to things carrying over. What about us versus them thinking? 
that's a good one yeah so so that i would imagine is a is a symptom again probably um so i would see that as it doesn't necessarily solve a problem if it goes away but it tells me there's a problem somewhere else um and i would think maybe that the dysfunction of that is uh perhaps we don't have uh, good alignment on our goals as a team and so we're pulling in different directions might be one that i, I would observe um, and so using that as an example, then purpose is, well, uh, if we're using Scrum, then the product goal as a single product goal that every team on the on the, um, on the the product is aligned to is a way that Scrum tries to solve that problem. And perhaps we don't have a product goal. Uh, maybe the reason is because uh, no one read the Scrum guide since it was changed in 2020 and realizes that the product goal is, is a thing now. Um, and so I might take on the... Uh, the coach stance, I might, in a retrospective where the team's complaining about the other team, ask some reframing questions and see if they can figure out why they, why the other team has different outcomes or, or different desires and why it's causing conflict. Um, I might take on, again, a teacher stance or, or, or a um, mentor stance and help some individual in the team uh, to understand why product goals might be helpful and see if that can be rolled into the way that we're doing, say, backlog refinement or future sprint planning. Um, again, as a, as a result, I would come up with a, a measure which would be cool. Some of these these symptoms of team conflict might go away. So, for example, um, how often does someone in this team raise their voice to someone in another team? Because that might be a symptom that I've you know, I've personally have seen many times. Uh, or it might just be as simple as avoidance, right? How, how often are the teams actually going and talking to each other versus avoiding it because they know it will turn into conflict? Depending on the symptom that I've seen, that would be the sort of thing I might go after measuring. But again, as long as they understand that purpose, um, we can try and find out. Amazing. I think those those examples through that speed dating exercise have probably brought this to life even further. So thank you for playing that game with me. I've got a final question before we wrap up today. I'm keen to hear if you've had any maybe unexpected insights that have come up through dysfunction mapping, maybe something that surprised you or the team or even something funny that came up. What stories can you share about that? Yeah, I, th I think maybe a couple of good ones. So, so the first one um, is essentially when I realized that all of the problems that I was facing with one team were essentially because of one person. And, and this this is going to make it sound weird. This isn't this isn't a blame placing episode, uh, you know, approach. Um, but I found that I was I had two teams I was working as Scrum Master for both at the same time. And I found that I could come up with my hypotheses and take an approach and that one team would do really, really well, but then one team would push back, not enjoy it, not appreciate it, and, and wouldn't change. And every time I was applying the same approach across both teams and getting very, very different uh, outcomes. Um, and so that was, firstly, it was an, a note that I was failing, right? I was um, trying this, this heavy-handed approach of t treating both of these teams as the same, and they weren't. Um, sometimes you can treat teams as the same, right? Sometimes they're aligned enough, they have similar enough skill sets that that works. Other times it doesn't, and so that was um, visible. But uh, particularly when I started digging into well, why is it that this this other team isn't uh, getting the the value from the coaching activities the same way as the other team, um, and it, it turned out it, it, once a bit of digging was done um, that it was because there was another stakeholder, let's just say a manager, uh, who had very different expectations of that team than I did. 
and they spent a lot of time talking to team A, but not a lot of time talking to team B. So my coaching activity was highly influential with team B, but not influential at all with team A because they had another more important stakeholder. So I realized that what I actually had to do was shift my coaching and mentoring to that stakeholder, not to the team and solve that problem first before I could have any, any coaching impact. So that, that was an interesting one. Um, and then I guess secondarily, I just had a lot of fun when I first started sharing this approach with other coaches and, um, a, a use for this tool that I hadn't realized that I'm, I'm now trying to think about how to expand upon is, um, it's a real life professional scrum exam. It's a way of, of applying the way of thinking about scrum, that, that purpose statement in particular, this idea of, do I understand the purpose of this thing? Because I think a lot of scrum practitioners, when they've picked up this tool, they've actually realized quite quickly that a lot of the approaches they've taken, let's, let's say story points for an example, right? They do it because it's common or because they've seen it elsewhere. But when they stop and they think, oh, why, why does this matter? What is the purpose of this thing? They often realize actually they don't know that as well as they, as they thought. And so it, it gives them that kind of real life examination of, uh, of the practices that they're using. And so I think it can actually be a useful learning tool, even if you don't have necessarily the practice that you're trying to apply it to, it's just checking your own knowledge. So. Sounds a very powerful way to help people avoid mechanical application of frameworks and approaches and, and truly understand the, the why, the purpose behind them. And that comes back mm. to, I guess, the Agile Manifesto, the mindset and principles. It's, it's about, about those more than is how it specifically applies. Now, it's time to finish up the show. Now, I'd, I'd love to hear from you uh, a little bit further, Michael. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? Where can they learn more about you? Yeah, cool. Um, so like I say, at the moment, my, my main focus is dysfunction mapping, but um, LinkedIn is where I do all of my just general thinking, teaching, helping, that kind of thing. So, so follow me there. Um, I do have a dysfunction mapping template on the Miroverse. So if you want to give it a go, um, grab that, try it. Um, if you search for it on YouTube, you can see a talk that I did at Scrum Masters of the Universe a little while back where I do a, a full walkthrough of kind of going through the process. So, so that hopefully that will help. Uh, and then I am currently working on, on a workshop. So I've, I've got one actually in a couple of days time uh, and I'll be doing another one in, in another month or two. Uh, and that's like a full day, eight hours. Let's get together. Let's talk about the problems you're seeing and let's go through this process, learn by doing. Um, I will also eventually be working on some kind of online course and a book. I just want to get as much of this out there to help as many people as possible. So yeah, if you plan on giving it a go, um, feel free to reach out if anything's not making sense. So if you just want someone to be a sounding board for your hypotheses, uh, then yeah, let, let me know. Always happy to do that. Amazing. Well, uh, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing your wisdom on the, on the topic. That's a great offer there for anyone who, who needs a bit of extra support with understanding and yeah, turning those, those dysfunctions and symptoms into hypotheses. We've mapped our way through the fascinating world of dysfunctions today, and we couldn't have asked for a better guide in, in the creator himself, Mr. Michael Lloyd. So thank you for your time today. As we do finish up, I would like us to remember that whilst dysfunctions are a part of every team's journey, with the right mindsets and principles and understanding of the purpose, we can turn those into opportunities for, for growth and improvement. And we all know there's nothing certain in life except death, taxes and complaints about scaled agile framework. Well, dear listener, I've got a new tax for you on the show today that I'd love you to pay for us. If you've enjoyed the episode, if you've gained value from it, spread the wealth by paying the tax and sharing it with a friend or colleague. It's the agile tax that just keeps on giving. We're always looking for new guests to appear on the show, so do reach out if you want to be involved. Don't forget to check out www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk for one of the largest collections of free agile resources. 
on the net. And as always, don't stop believing. You've just listened to another episode of the Virtually Agile podcast. Don't forget to check out www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk for one of the largest collections of free templates on the web on all things agile. If this show provided value, I'd love your support by following or subscribing on your platform of choice. See you folks next time.